Welcome to The Penny Drops, the Royal London podcast series simplifying finance to help more people, like you, make better informed money decisions. Each episode, Andrea Fox grills a guest to get the best tips on issues such as savings, pensions, budgeting, debt, family finance, marriage and retirement. She's finding the answers we're looking for and getting expert tips that you can put into action. Royal London recommends you seek professional independent financial advice before making financial decisions. All views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and not of Royal London. This month's episode was recorded in February 2020 before any government restrictions were put in place in relation to coronavirus. For more information on the new measures and financial support being offered by the government, please visit gov.uk forward slash coronavirus. Hello and welcome to The Penny Drops with me, Andrea Fox. On today's episode, we're talking mental health and your finances. And I'm joined by not one, but two guests today, both mental health advocates. George David Hodgson is a fashion designer who turned his sketches that he would draw when suffering from anxiety into t-shirts and then a fashion label, Maison de Choupe with 25% of the proceeds going to the UK's leading mental health charity for young people, Young Minds, to raise awareness of mental health issues. Hi, George. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, Joining him is Brian Semple, Head of External Affairs at Money and Mental Health, a charity working to break the link between financial difficulty and mental health problems. He's previously worked at Rethink Mental Illness, so we'll have a wealth of knowledge, pun intended, for us today. Hi, Brian. Hi, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So I want if you could both um, tell us where you got to today, what's brought you to work in mental health? Brian, do you mind starting for us? Yeah, so I actually started out as a journalist, but quite quickly I wanted to move into the charity sector and I was particularly interested in mental health. I think because around that time there was growing awareness of how much uh, mental health problems can affect people, how prevalent they are, um, and also of the need to really improve services and support for people across really all aspects of society. So it felt like a really important area to go into. Amazing. And so, George, what's your journey into mental health? My journey, my journey actually comes from me actually suffering myself. And I, um, a couple of years ago, quite a few years ago now, came down with severe anxiety, OCD and panic attacks. And it was from that that I tried getting help from the NHS and I had to wait, you know, I was told I have to wait 40 weeks. And then from that experience, yeah, so it's pretty hard hitting. Um, And from that experience, my parents then sent me privately and I came out, you know, it took about three years to recover from it, although not never fully recover from mental illness. You know, it's always there. You just manage to cope with it. So it took after three years, I kind of came through the other end and thought, you know, how, how can I help other people going through the same thing? And that was my journey sort of setting out on that journey. It's amazing that you've taken something that was like obviously a horrible situation and you've come and found some good from it because you suffered from anxiety and OCD, is that correct? Yes, so I had anxiety, severe anxiety, which is obviously overthinking, uh, not being able to sort of leave anywhere, go out like my parents, panicking all the time. So I took a brown paper bag with me around to um, to kind of breathe into, to regulate my breathing when I was having a panic attack, um, which is obviously not medically proven, but it was my kind of crutch at the time. Okay. Um, And then OCD was sort of washing my hands 50 to 100 times a day because from the story um, of what became the catalyst, which was taking some drugs, um, I thought there were drug traces on everything. So I'd have to wash my hands all the time and, you know, go through all the soap and it was becoming quite exhausting. So I'm yeah. really obsessive. And, and OCD is more than just obviously hand washing. It's sort of thinking up scenarios inside your head and then thinking about them so, so much. Exhausting that you start then believing them. It's very strange. Um, and because you can't get out of the loop, you start believing that things are real. Um, so I'm almost like a psychosis. 
It's quite, sounds so debilitating on like a day-to-day level. Yeah, it was, it was really hard. Um, I mean, I hit rock bottom. I was experiencing suicidal thoughts because I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I obviously told my parents, my parents were very supportive, but it was, it was super difficult to sort of know how to manage it because I wanted to be better within two weeks, but it obviously took three years. But accepting that it takes time, I think it was one of the most important things, you know, and that's what they kept encouraging when I was seeing so my psychiatrist and my therapist. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Everyone just wants to be better quickly, but yeah, that's exactly. just not the way it works. And it must have been really hard as well when you go to your doctor and you were told that you had that massive weight. And that's actually how you ended up working with Young Minds, isn't it? Yeah, so um, I work with Young Minds now in a few capacities. I'm a youth advisor for them on the Amplified program, which is really cool. But as well as that, the, the brand Maison de Cheap donates 25 cents to them from from certain designs and the idea behind that was because when I was ill I googled my symptoms which we all know is a terrible idea Google uh, doctor yeah Brian's nodding <laughs> yeah it's uh, fantastic um, but I, I stumbled across Young Minds website and it was listing the symptoms what I was going through under the anxiety subheading and I thought actually that's what I'm going through if there's if they're if they're listing it there must be other people out there going through the same thing so I thought that's really comforting and when I you know when the brand started moving getting some traction I launched I thought I want to give back to a charity that's helping specifically young people because I was that young person um, that actually can't afford to go privately and that they need their help and the parents need their help as well so I thought I'm going to give back and help them um, and then from there I kind of stemmed into you know campaigning with them and working with them activist activism with them and, and advising them as well and kind of doing work with the NHS so Amazing. yeah so if anyone's listening and they're thinking, they may be worried about their mental health, from your experience, like what are the signs to look out for, George? Signs to look out for, I suppose, becoming um, quite low in mood mm-hmm. um, and anything out of the ordinary from your, your usual self. So I was very clearly not my usual self. I'm a very bubbly, hyperactive character and I was the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. I was panicking all the time. I was sort of washing my hands and obviously feeling really anxious and I wasn't even doing anything. I was lying in bed. I could have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I had the second one, you know, the first one was terrifying. The second one, I thought, why have I suddenly had another one? Um, I told my parents, I said, you know, there's something really wrong here. That This is not me at all. Only a couple of weeks ago, I was having a good time with my friends. Um, so recognizing when something in yourself is out of, out of the ordinary, when you don't feel quite right, when there's something nagging at you, but you're not quite sure what it is, you, you know, it's there. Um, you feel like you've got some sort of cloud above you um, and you you don't necessarily know what it is. It could be something underlying and you think, okay, there's, there's something happening here and maybe I should check it out. Would you agree with that? Or is that kind of the, the warning signs maybe people should look for with their mental health? Yeah, and I think it can differ from condition to condition, of course, as well. I think, George, you've described it really well in terms of uh, some of the things that you've been through in terms of anxiety and depression and OCD. Um, I mean, conditions such as bipolar disorder um, can also have other kinds of symptoms such as, you know, um, kind of feeling on a manic high or going through manic episodes or very crushing lows. Um, You can also have uh, quite severe conditions like psychosis where people are potentially having hallucinations or Mm -hmm. hearing voices. There's a whole kind of range of different things. Um, But I think that, you know, as George said, that kind of aspect of something not being quite right and over, particularly over a sustained period of time is definitely something to be to be watchful for. Yeah. So how do our financial health and our mental health kind of come together, would you say, Brian? They're very closely related. And that's actually why um, uh, our founder, uh, Martin Lewis, who most people know as the money saving expert. Mm. Love Martin. Um, <laughs> he set up my charity Money and Mental Health three years ago because whenever he was working with people who were struggling with financial issues, he he saw time and time again how that had a real psychological toll on people mm. and also the kind of reoccurring link between 
people who are struggling with their mental health and their finances. So we think that there's a really strong link. We know that around one and a half million people in England are currently dealing with both money and mental health problems. If you're struggling with your mental health, you're three and a half times more likely to be in problem debt as well. So there's very strong links there. And some of the symptoms, George, that you described in terms of things like low mood, reduced concentration, um, low motivation, and even struggling with potentially memory problems, those kinds of things can really make it hard to both stay on top of your finances, but also to earn money as well. So there's things like that. We also know that when you're struggling with your mental health, most people who have those kind of conditions tend to be on lower incomes as well. And those kinds of things can all contribute to uh, people ending up in quite serious financial problems. Yeah. And I suppose when you say it, it makes such sense that if you're going through financial problems, that's a problem. And like anything else, I imagine it's going to affect your mental health, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think most of us know that feeling of dread whenever you open up a bill and it's something you hadn't anticipated (laughs) or you think, I'm not quite sure how to to cover that. And, you know, that, that kind of thing can be extremely distressing and stressful. Um, I think that if you are falling behind on bills and payments, you may also have things like bailiffs coming to the door and those kinds of things can have really serious psychological implications. Absolutely. Um, It can have a very negative impact on your mental health. So it's a kind of circular thing where your mental health can affect your finances and vice versa, really. Um, And, you know, there's lots that can be done to try and tackle these issues, but there's still um, lots more for government and banks and other people to do to try and break that link. Yeah, it makes such sense. We're going to get into some of those in just a second, but I wanted to bring you in again, George, and ask, like when you've talked about some of those low Mm. moments a minute ago, were you able to work through those? Essentially, uh, no. For the first uh, couple of months, probably to a year and a half, I couldn't. So your experience is just what Brian's been discussing there. Obviously, I'm very fortunate. My parents were supporting me. I was living at home. Um, You're, You're a young aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and um, I'd obviously left college because I got too ill and I, I couldn't work. But as I started getting better, uh, my, my psychiatrist said, maybe you could look for a job. So I thought, oh, oh gosh. So I, I went on and applied mm-hmm. and got a job at the supermarket, which I'm, you know, I'm still working at part time now just for that cash flow thing to always have that secure income. Um, but that that I, I put down to actually really helping me. Uh, not not just for the financial, obviously, mm-hmm. getting a bit of getting a bit of money, mm-hmm. um, for my mental health in general. Getting out of the house, I had purpose. I had to get out of the house. I had to get up every morning. Well, not every morning, but three mornings a week because mm-hmm. I started quite low. Um, and I, because I started very early in the morning, I suppose it's interesting on your mental health, but um, I started at 4am and finished at 8am. Um, but it, I'm a it, former uh, breakfast show host. That's not a nice time of the morning. No, but for me, because obviously as soon as I was awake, my brain started thinking too much and I was, uh, it would prevent me from doing anything during the day. So I, uh, having to get up at that time, sort of straight up, straight to work, it kind of broke the cycle of thinking so I thought I've got to go to work for something else to focus on and I was more focused on obviously trying to do the job properly and then the benefit of actually making a little bit of money from that as well kind of started to shift things and then, you know my parents had to support me less because um, I had some of my own money and I could use it for stuff so it kind of changed the dynamic of my illness a little bit and, and helped not only with the financial situation but actually with my mental health in general it kind of I suppose saved me it was the one of the first steps yeah. of, of recovery of, of actually being able to get out of the house and do something not just focusing on myself. Yeah, that sounds really positive. Would you say work and maybe then eventually the label kind of helped motivate you when you were feeling low? Absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. So obviously working at the supermarket was um, there, 
But when I was, you know, suffering, I used to write down and draw my thoughts and feelings and playing around with them. That was my creative outlet. It was my expression of what I was going through because I didn't have to talk about it to anyone at the time. So mm. I thought, I'll write and draw these down. Um, obviously, then went down to, down to dad's office with him and, and started playing around with them on the computer and adding color and manipulating them and thought, there's something here. Maybe I could do something with them. Um, so this, this project started forming inside my head and it actually became a reality. I bought myself a screen printing kit, tried printing it myself, went horribly wrong. Um, I was going to say screen <clears> printing, <throat> isn't that that's pretty yes. tough. Yeah, no, it was, I wasn't very good at it at all. Being an, art, <laughs> being an art and design student, you'd think I'd be quite good, but no, I was not. Um, but the idea was there, and I said to Dad, you know, would you laugh at me if I wanted to start my own T-shirt business? He said, no, no, not at all, you know, go for it. Um, <laughs> good luck. So I set about the journey of doing it, and it gave me focus. And I told my psychiatrist and therapist about it, and it gave me focus. And they said, it's good, you know, you're. I was taking myself out of my own head and putting it on paper and to this, this project because it, starting business are hard, undoubtedly incredibly hard. And it's quite mm -hmm. funny because for someone with mental health problems to start a business is like, uh, is that a good idea? And, you know, because it brings a lot of other problems. Mm -hmm. um, but it really was because I, I suddenly realized that I was focusing more on this, this baby of, of a little business that I've, I thought this could help people. You know, I started to realize there's something here and um, I'm becoming more myself. Brilliant. Um, we've heard a bit about work there, Brian. Do you think that employers could, should be doing more to help their employees with mental health issues? I think a lot of the time that is true. I think one of the things that we think is really important is for employers to kind of create a culture where people who are struggling with their mental health feel that they'll be supported rather than that that's going to be seen as something that is a problem or a weakness on their behalf. So, you know, we've we've made great strides as a society in the past 10 years, really, in tackling the stigma around mental health problems. Um, but a lot of employers probably still have some way to go on that. And um, I think that, you know, making, a, making this um, an issue that's discussed in the workplace that becomes a fixture of, you know, HR training and um, making support available to people in the workplace and helping people know that if they are struggling, that they can get that support through their employer. That kind of thing can really make a difference. Um, we also think then that um, there's a lot that could be done to improve the support for people when they maybe need some time off because mm -hmm. they're struggling with their mm -hmm. mental health. So there is statutory sick pay available, but it tends to be, it's it's very low and it okay. runs out after a certain period of time. Um, a lot of the time people are worried about actually admitting that they're too unwell to work because um, they're worried about the financial implications of going off and having to go on to statutory sick pay. So that's, those are some of the concerns that we have around um you know, the kind of support or lack of for people with mental health problems in the yeah. workplace. It's like you say, finances and mental health really go together a lot of the time, right? Yeah. Well, this is it. They kind of, that reoccurring cycle, kind of the two things crop up time and time again together. So if someone's working somewhere and those practices that you said aren't kind of available, what's your sort of advice for them to approach their employer to talk about their mental health? It's it's quite a personal choice, I think. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. For some people, they, they may well be, uh, the right thing to do and you know there is that prospect that you might your boss might make some reasonable adjustments for you they might be able to offer you for example slightly different working hours that might suit you better or uh, the chance to work from home or even things like being able to work in a quieter part of the workplace things things like that can help people kind of manage their their mental well-being in the workplace but we also know that some people are very worried about encountering stigma or negative attitudes from their employers, which is understandable, really, because um, it's unfortunately still very common. So it is a personal decision. I think what's really important for people to know is that they 
they are protected. They do have rights under the Equality Act. Um, so, um, you know, your employer legally isn't allowed to discriminate you against you uh, because of a disability like mental health problems. And there's lots of really good information about this on the MIND website. They've got some specific resources about helping you to think about you know, is this the right thing for me? How, how should I approach my employer? What kinds of things could I ask for? What are my rights in this situation? So if someone is kind of trying to weigh up whether this is the right thing for them to do, I really recommend them looking on the MIND website um, and that will help them feel hopefully that um, they know what their rights are in that situation. And like you say, encouraging people to maybe think about taking time off if they are suffering from mental health issues. I know there's the financial implications, but would you say that's a really important thing for people to consider if they can? Well, one of the things that we see, because people are worried about taking time off, they continue to stay in work whilst getting really unwell. Mm. And then that leads to bigger problems, as you can imagine. And then it can lead to just having to leave the workplace altogether. So I think it's simple things, relatively simple things. Like, for example, if you are, you're working in um, the supermarket or whatever it is, we're talking about your situation, George. Mm-hmm. Um mm. If someone's working full-time hours but they feel that it's just with something that they're going through it's just too difficult could the employer give them slightly reduced hours but give them a little bit of uh, sick pay on top of that rather than um, and give them phased returns to work if they need that time off it's, it's things like that which will require a bit of a cultural shift but would make a big difference in terms of people getting through a period of mm-hmm. uh, mental ill health but not uh, things not escalating to the point where they have to take long periods of time off or fall out of the workplace altogether. So those are some of the things that we want employers to look at. We want the government to look at as well because, you know, the government really needs to lead the charge in terms of actually making those reforms and enc- encouraging employers to offer more flexibility in that situation. But it would make a big difference to people. I was wondering as well what advice you would give to freelancers who maybe don't have an employer to go to like oneself. Mm, well, this is... Um, I mean, this is something that we see quite a lot, and particularly with the rise of the the gig economy. And it's more pre- prevalent now. Freelancers, like you were saying, George, as well. You you didn't go full time at the su- at the supermarket, no, no. obviously. So, yeah, and we we would like to see uh, what I mentioned about the the kind of greater flexibility of strategy sick pay. Mm-hmm. We would like to see that extended to people who are freelancers, self employed, or working in the gig co- economy as well, because that can already be a fairly precarious situation financially and and in terms of your mental health. Um, And we think really there needs to be greater protection for people in that position. And that's one of the things the government could do. That's interesting. So you've mentioned that benefit. Is there anything else that is available to people out there? Or is that statutory sick pay kind of where it starts and ends? That's the main thing. And then obviously then you can um, move on to the, the broader benefit system if you end, uh, if you're out of work for a sustained period of time. But we know that you know, lots of people face challenges getting the benefits that they might be entitled to as well. So, um, you know, particularly if you're struggling with your mental health, it can be really hard to fill in some of the forms mm. and kind of complicated uh, procedures you have to go through to maybe get on something like universal credit. Um, so there's there's quite a lot of issues there, but that's the kind of support then that comes. And if people are, um, for people listening, you know, there's a lot of uh, advice and information about this on, for example, the Citizens Advice website around what benefits you may be entitled to if you do need to take time off work. Interesting. Did you find any of those when you were looking, George? There was any of the sites that you came across? Um, I didn't really, because I, I suppose I a didn't really know about it, and b I I just I suppose I didn't need need it at the time yeah. um, because uh, I was obviously working part time, and it was enough for me to survive. Mm. I wasn't 
uh, sort of aware of it. I didn't really need to look into it. But I suppose if I'd known about it, it would have been quite interesting. And the supermarket were very good in the fact that they supported me. You know, I said in the interview, I said, I've got anxiety and sometimes I'm a bit of a mess. Um, and they were fine. They said, it's fine. You know, just let us know if you ever need any support or extra help or anything. We'll be able to assist you. And they're actually now very good with what they do. They're, they're going quite big on, on mental health and kind of encouraging their staff to talk about it. Uh, which is really important. So in terms of that, as I'm still there, mm-hmm. I know that the support is there if I need it. Um, but externally, I haven't really looked into it. It's quite interesting. But it's a nice positive story from your employer, yeah. though, which I think is really lovely to yeah. hear. Um, we talked about governments, we talked about employers. Brian, where do you think that banks and financial service providers need to do more to make it easier for their customers to let them know that maybe they're suffering with their mental health? In terms of banks, there's been good progress on this in recent years. We know that um, you know most banks will have uh, a specialist vulnerable customers team that um, will be able to help people in that situation mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, we think that there's definitely room for improvement though as well. We we would like to see anyone who is anyone working for a bank who is on that kind of front line of talking cost talking to customers having mental health training so that whenever a customer seems to be potentially struggling with that kind of um, issue that um, their staff are in a good place to to support them and to potentially refer them to other so- sources of support. So making sure your your staff and have the training and tools to actually support people in that situation is really important. But we don't think that the onus should have to be on individuals to tell their bank that they're struggling with their mental health and to get their help. There are things that banks can do to kind of more proactively offer that support. Really? I wonder, so, sorry to interrupt. No, go for I it. I was just wondering, because when I go on my bank, they're always saying, you know, if you, need any, if you need anything, we're here. And my immediate thoughts are, how trust work because you know with banks they make money from people not having money <laughs> it was that with being honest they do that's how they make their money so how how do banks change the not asking the question how do banks change the perception of the fact that they say actually i don't have any money i do need some more money um but can i trust the bank to actually be really authentically supportive of me in that in that need because along the road, their bank is going to say, actually, we need the money back now. And we're like, oh, you know, I don't have it. And the bank will say, well, you know, <laughs> what, what? That's just a... It's a really good question. Um, and I think it differs as well from yeah. bank to bank as well. And some will be better than others on this, to be honest. Um, I think that it's interesting. We do hear from people that in some instances, they've said that they're really struggling with their mental health and that's why they've fallen into these financial problems. We have heard cases of banks giving people extra time to make payments back, even potentially writing off the debt altogether. But we also know that some people are really worried about telling their bank in case it affects them, particularly for things like lending decisions, you know. Exactly. It's one of those things that, as I say, it will be, it's a bit of a personal decision for someone whether they disclose or not, but we don't think that we don't think that onus and that responsibility should be on that person because it's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah. And as you say, people are concerned about trust. But there are things that banks can do. For example, they'll be able to see if you are persistently in your overdraft, if you are potentially if um, we talked about uh, people having manic episodes, which can lead them spending impulsively and spending money that they don't have. Yeah, I think um, that was a fact I saw on your website, actually. Yeah, it can be, it can be a big factor for some mental health conditions. And... You know, whenever that happens, your bank is can tell what your spending patterns are and they are using your data for things like marketing and things like that. Hello, algorithms. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, we think that in that kind of instance, if something seems to be uh, 
moving out of control or unusual or potentially negative spending patterns, banks could potentially just send someone a text message or drop an email um, to someone with sources of support around their debt and around their financial situation. That kind of thing could make a difference. Now, it obviously opens up some really big ethical questions and Mm -hmm. some of the things you were talking about, George. Interestingly, we've done a bit of research on this uh, recently and we had really... We were surprised that there was really strong support among people who are struggling with their mental health for banks to be a bit more proactive like Mm -hmm. that. Um, Really strong consumer appetite for banks to do more in that kind of space. So that's one of the things that we're asking banks to take a look at and to, you know, if they're going to be using personal data, then to use it for good purposes rather than just trying to sell people products, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. But you did mention text and emails there. Um, do you think that's kind of a better way when you're dealing with these kind of issues? Because obviously we mentioned bills and bailiffs earlier mm. and bills falling on the doormat can have an adverse effect to your mental health, correct? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it can have a really serious impact. We know that people have told us that, uh, you know, that bill coming through the door, the intimidating language, the threats <laughs> of court action, it can actually contribute to people becoming suicidal, you know, mm. amongst other things. Um, so that's something that we are very concerned about. Um, I think that one of the things that we think is really important is that people should be allowed to tell their bank how best to communicate to them. So it may be that people don't want to use the phone or they might want to hear from using text messages or emails or letters. I think different people have different preferences. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we'd like to see is banks just asking people what way you would like to be communicated Mm -hmm. at best, because that could make some difference in terms of trying to reduce some of that anxiety and psychological uh, damage that can come from a letter coming through the door. But, I mean, we're we're also asking the government to change the rules about those letters because... The ridiculous thing is that banks are actually forced by law to use really intimidating language in those letters and to, uh, to you know, have those threats of court action. And actually, they're forced to give people out-of-date advice about how to deal with their debt problems. Really? So those banks have to tell people to uh, consult their solicitor <laughs> or their local trading standards board, which was... Useful information. My on, on my speed well, channel, obviously. <laughs> this, I mean, so that was, that's, those rules have been in place since 1983, which is uh, wow. before I was born. Um, oh, me too. I just want to throw that in and definitely before, before George was born. Before everyone in this room was born. <laughs> um, with the government needs to look at this. It needs yeah. to update these because that's just a small thing that, you know, I mentioned charities like Citizens Advice and mm. Step Chains. There's free debt advice out to people, yeah. uh, available to people. We would like to see that being put at the top of those letters to try and reduce the psychological mm. impact that they can have for people. Because as I say, it can contribute to people feeling there's no way out of their situation. That's a really interesting point that. George, would you go along with that? I know you were supported by your um, family when you were having your issues, but would you go along with that? Are those kind of ideas that Brian's yeah, brought up there? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. I was thinking as you were talking, Brian, obviously text messages are fine, emails fine. Um, letters are always a bit of a worry because they feel more formal, more serious, don't you? As soon as you get a letter from the bank, you think, oh God, he's not being sold <laughs> something or something bad has happened. Um, sort of contrary to that point, text messages can also be quite a scary thing sometimes because the only time the bank ever really texts you is if you've done something, you know, oh gosh, you're this close to your overdraft. Um, And you think, oh no, no, what do I do? You know, then you you immediately panic. That day is ruined because you're like, oh, you know, what do I do from here? They'd kind of just tell you. Obviously, it's the algorithm just sending out a text saying, this is what your balance is. You've got this many payments. It doesn't list the payments. It says, you've got this payments coming up. Make sure you have enough money in your bank before then. And you think, uh... 
what do I do now? And you kind of, they don't give any advice. It's it's sort of almost, uh, this is the situation, deal with it. Um, and I think it'd be helpful if the texts were more regular of, you know, this is your, I think this is why, you know, internet banks now, mm-hmm. um, the, 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 the nice orange colored card one we really talk about is, um, Love is, that one. Is, is, yeah, it's, it's getting very famous because it does. It updates you all the time. As soon as you spend some money, it says you've spent this money. And as soon as you get some money, it says you've got this money. And you kind of, you're subconsciously keeping a track of what's going on with your finances. And, and the bank I use started sending me notifications of when I get money or when I've spent money. And that, in your head, you, if, you ha- if you know what your balance is, you can kind of track it in your head and you have a you feel more comfortable. Obviously, back in the day when you didn't know what was in your bank, you had to wait for a letter and stuff like yeah. that. It's quite daunting. Or go to an ATM. Or go to an ATM, yeah, exactly. Um, but now with the sort of rise of technology, mm. it's becoming more manageable and you've got apps that kind of can he- keep keep track of your spending. So it, it's interesting. They should be kind of encouraging and working with these apps and these mm. companies saying, you know, if you need if you need help, Keeping track on keeping on top of your finances, we'd recommend this, or this might be a helpful tool to use um, in future. You know, if you need some immediate support, contact this company. But in future restaurants, this might be quite a useful tool for your, your finances. So the banks could encourage that. They could mm. say, "There's apps here. You know, this is this is a really good app. We'd recommend this. It's been recommended by our users or our customers mm. to to help with your finances." And by doing that, it's a sort of non intimidating way of saying you've got a bit of a finance problem this is a way of dealing with it you know without suggesting anything too serious Um, without those red-headed letters like you say yeah so I think that's quite a nice yeah I think it's I think that's all true and it's really exciting actually some of the kind of potential for people to you know to create offer people tools that they can better manage their spending and to give them that bit more support with managing it and some of those banks that you mentioned they'll they'll also do kind of jam jarring tools where yeah, you can yeah, yeah. put away that money yeah, for yeah. particular things you can um one of the things we've seen recently as well is uh, banks offering people spending blocks on yeah, things like gambling, yeah, caps, yeah. which is really, really helpful as well. Because yeah. um, I'm trying to help people I with that that element of impulsivity. You can just yeah. put on that block. And the best ones will give people a bit of friction as well. So you can't just turn it on and off straight away. You have to maybe wait 48 hours before you yeah, can turn the block yeah. off or mm-hmm. maybe have to phone people up, phone up the bank to say, I want to turn it off. And those kinds of things can help act as a deterrent for people. You also, I think, raised another really interesting point around banks actually needing to talk to people and work with people to build those tools so that they actually suit people's personal Mm. experiences and reflect what people really need. And we think that's really important, particularly with people who may be affected by mental health problems, actually designing these products with those people and help getting their views and shaping those products out. That's what's going to make the difference in making them uh, effective for people. And that's something we try to do as a charity. We have a, a research community of around 5,000 people of lived experience, people have, um, with mental health problems. And we do work with firms to actually, uh, you know, test things and try and make sure that the views and experiences of people actually shape some of those products that are being offered to people. Yeah, it all sounds so positive, doesn't it? Like yeah. using technology, giving people choice. Proactivity over reactivity is more... Yeah, I love that. Love that phrase. I'm write that down. <laughs> Much the lot, yeah. <laughs> um, but we talked a lot, all of us, about the stigma around maybe going to your employer, going to your bank. Um, if you're able to go to a loved one, would you? Is that something you recommend? Getting a loved one involved to help you with your mental health, your finance health. 
I think most of us will rely on family or friends at different points in our life for, uh, well, for lots of things, but with our finances and with kind of making financial decisions, I think that can be a really important source of support. And uh, our research shows that people who are struggling with their mental health in particular find that kind of support really helpful. The problem is that there aren't a great range of tools available to people in that situation. Mm. So, I mean, we've talked about some of the the kind of exciting new apps and tools. That there isn't a great deal in that kind of space for kind of, for example, if you wanted a bit of support from your mum or your dad in terms of managing your finances, you kind of have to go down fairly formal routes like power of attorney, which is quite mm. serious, um, quite you know, quite stringent sounding. Um, that is just just to explain that quickly for anyone who doesn't know what that is. That is basically, am I right, handing your whole financial endeavour over to a family member so, so they make decisions on your behalf? It essentially is appointing someone to help you with uh, your finances, and it's in theory very flexible. You can say you can set that in whatever way you want it, but it doesn't isn't really working very well because it's kind of. Uh, it's so flexible that people find it too complex to use and right. banks find it too complex to implement. And what effectively happens is that people end up signing off complete control of their finances to someone else. That That's what people say to us that they, they're, you know, that's what's put them off it's doing lot, it. Isn't it? Yeah. And, and so, you know, we want to see that being changed so that, you know, if you want to go down the power of attorney route, you, there should be a range of options that are presented to you to help you do that and kind of different levels of control that you hand over. But also we want to see more banks offering simple tools that could do that in a more light touch way. So, for example, as I say, if it was your 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 parent or your partner, um, there are apps that are being developed at the moment which would allow them some visibility over your account. Okay. So, for example, they might you would set up these alerts yeah, exactly. with them and and with your partner or your your parent but they could send you a send your partner a text message if you've suddenly gone into the red or there could be some kind of uh, like a traffic light system of you know green everything's fine yellow mm, red this is there's some danger here um there's all kinds of tools like that which are kind of in the process of being developed at the moment um and we'd like to see them becoming more widespread just to give people a bit more flexibility and to make that whole process a bit easier because the really worrying thing is that we know that people are using quite risky options to try and get support from other people. So giving people their their bank login details, their okay. card details, which I understand why people are doing it because they, you know, the options aren't there otherwise yeah. to help them um, with sharing some of the financial decisions. But, you know, that is quite worrying. It's, it's, it's not safe for people to do that and no. it's not safe for... Uh, people in a caring role to have that kind of knowledge either because there's all kinds of uh, yeah, implications that things could go wrong. So, yeah, we want to see more tools, more apps being developed in that space. Would you go along with that, George? Do you think that's that's something you'd like to see? Does that all sound positive to you yeah, from your experience? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think um, this is a bit off-piece, but I was thinking when we are talking, we're obviously talking about people with less money, but also there's a, there's a, there's a sort of argument or a, a question, I don't know if this is covered, that people with too much money also have mental health problems um, because that's a completely different uh, sort of it's area. a different set of problems, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. There's been um, quite a bit of media coverage around that kind of, you know, middle class debt almost, mm. and there's <laughs> that element of 
keeping up with the Joneses and things yeah, like that. Yeah, private schools and you get into that lifestyle. You're right, I hadn't even considered that, Brian. When you were talking, George, I was thinking, oh yeah, FOMO going out, out, out. But you're right, they're keeping up with the Joneses when you don't necessarily have the money for that car and everything yeah. builds up. And you sort of get stuck in the lifestyle of the classic line of, oh, I'm just going to go into the city for a few years and then make my fortune and come out. Well, what happens is they get stuck and they stuck in the lifestyle of the kids go to private school, they've got a nice car, they've got to fund this. And then they're like, I can't come out now because I've got this lifestyle, I've got to fund. And then you obviously in the mm. city, you see a lot of mental health problems of I don't enjoy my job, I need to get out, but I can't because if I can't get out, then I've lost all my money. And that's a massive problem. Yeah. You know, like how do you even begin to tackle something like that? You can see how people start going and spiraling out of control in a different way. So you don't have financial problems, but you have mental health problems and your own, so I suppose your own financial issues but there with yourself and the fact that you've set a standard of yourself and who you associate with and if you leave it, what does your life look like? So it's kind of interesting that, you know, having little money creates problems, but also having lots of money creates problems. There's no yeah. sort of happy medium. I think it's important to encourage that. Yeah, we mentioned it flippantly just before we came in to record this episode, but all the lottery winners are miserable. So, and, and like you say, so many of us are that like squeezed middle, I think is the phrase, where, you know, you're working hard, you've got kids, you've got elderly parents. That's a lot of pressure too, right? Isn't it, Brian? It is a lot of pressure. And I think, you know, people are worried about, uh, you know, what's going to happen with uh, their parents as they're getting older. They're worried about making sure that they can have the best uh, future for their own children. And those are the kinds of things that can keep you awake at night, really. Did you find it quite easy to talk to your parents then, George, talking about getting family members involved? Was it easy for you to speak um, to them? Yeah, because at the time I was obviously quite vulnerable. Um, and I'm still very open about my finances now with them because, you know, I'm 23 and I'm not like a guru of it. So kind of taking advice and, and knowing what to do with it is, is super important. You know, mm -hmm. I've got to learn from someone. Um and I've made mistakes. I've obviously been the, the arrogance of youth of just buying something because I wanted it and thinking that was not a good idea. And, you know, my parents are always right. They said, don't do that. You'll probably not have that. Well, that will definitely impact you in a couple of weeks. And I think, oh, well, it'll be fine. And it does generally impact me. But so it's sort of learning that and being kind of looking ahead and thinking, okay, what's the situation? And, and they're always there to help with that and say, no, you should, you know, be be careful you know if you can you can if you can't don't do it because you might need it and things come up in life that you think okay actually I do need some money for that yeah. so um yeah generally it was, it was quite an open conversation I'm still very open with them now because I think that's the best way to be you know if I was struggling I'd say I'm struggling but I'm going to try and work through it and this is my plan what do you think I say yep, that's fine good or do this and do that um so kind of just it clears clears the air a little bit and it makes me feel better because mm. you know I find it hard to try and tiptoe around or behind the scenes and be like oh no I've got serious problems but I don't want my parents knowing because you know I'm 23 and I should be financially stable we live in a different world mm. you know it's hard to to live now to any, doing anything trying to get on the property ladders but yeah. a joke for young people mm. trying to move out is now incredibly hard for young people so sort of looking at it in a different it's okay, I'm going through this, but I'll be able to manage. It's important. Yeah, and sharing. Like we've said, sharing your mental open, health yeah. issues, being yeah. open, um, sharing money issues as well. Um, I feel as well, we keep talking about apps, but when it comes to older generations, obviously mm. they're just oh, yeah. as likely to suffer from financial mm. uh, issues, from mental health issues. Is that kind of like a forgotten area, do you think, Brian? I think that's an interesting point. Um, 
I think you're right that uh, these issues can absolutely affect uh, people later in life as well. And to some extent, that possibly is slightly overlooked. Um, and I think that uh, financially, uh, again, these you know, people, anyone can fall behind on payments and anyone can end up in financial difficulty no matter what stage of life. Yeah, and I suppose like you've already said, it's just having that open discussion with banks and having different ways for people to be able to say, yeah. this is how I'd like to be contacted. Well, it, it's one of the interesting things because I, I, we find it really exciting as you were talking about, George, the different options with technology. But then for some people, it is just important to be able to get cash from an ATM mm -hmm. and go and talk to a person maybe exactly and it a is, real life bank yeah it's really important IRL well absolutely and it's really it's really important that um, you know while things are becoming increasingly digital that people who are maybe not really on board with that are not able to manage that kind of technology that they still have that those kind of options available to them and they're not left behind really because mm. um, for a lot of people uh you know, a lot of people find the, the apps and that very helpful. Other people just want to be able to go into the bank and get cash yeah. out. Yeah. And being taken advantage of, I feel with old people, it's very easy for the, them to be scammed or, you know, send a letter through. Yeah, safety online yeah, is a know, massive issue for all of us. And so. uh, getting the cold calls of, you know, you need to pay this bill. So it's about kind of awareness of that as well and kind of recognising what, what's real and what's and, you know, and what's not real. Yeah. I mean, I get almost get caught out. We've all had those emails, haven't we, and gone, is this real? I'm just going to double check mm. this email again. Uh, so we talked a lot about advice, but when it comes to like emotional support, what would you, any kind of places that you would recommend people go to? Um, I mean, there's obviously the charities, which are probably a first step. If it's more severe, then uh, there's, there's steps to it but mm -hmm. the first step is sort of charities your mind's mind they they have resources to be able to kind of advise and direct you in the right place um, and and you can kind of check which which stage you're at and how you're feeling your emotional well-being and think okay when I'm feeling that I'm going to go to here and that's probably the first port of call I'd say okay. um, the sort of credible charities that know what they're talking about yeah I think that's right I mean charities like Mind Rethink Mental Illness mm -hmm. Young Minds as you said uh, they'll be able to give you that kind of support with the clinical side of things, but also with the emotional side of things. A lot of those charities run support groups um, that might be one in your area um, and kind of different ways of actually being able to engage with other people who are going through similar things. So uh, a lot of those charities run online forums as mm -hmm. well. And those kinds okay. of things can make a big difference in terms mm -hmm. of helping people see that they're not alone and there's other people going through similar things and just actually getting that bit of peer support from others. Yeah. yeah. We've both made some... Awesome points. But as we're coming to the end of today's episode, I know, sad times. If there's just one thing you want people to take away from this episode, what would it be? George, I'm going to start with you. I mean, the first and foremost would be for me to talk about it. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It, if it, as soon as it's out there, in the you know, it clears the air, makes you feel better. It's a big weight off your shoulders. So my, my first one would be talk. Uh, Brian, any more? So... I think that if you are struggling, if you feel that like you might be struggling with your mental health or financial issues, a similar point, do reach out for help. Um, it's not always perfect, the support that's available, but there are there are lots of free debt um, charities that, will, that can help you. There are lots of mental health charities that can help you, or you can go to your GP if it's the mental health mm. side of things. So, you know, we would encourage people not to suffer in silence by themselves but to actually try and get that help because the earlier that you can get it both from the financial and uh, mental health perspective it makes a big impact well, you've both given some amazing advice on today's apps, episode yeah. so thank you so much for that sorry yes and the apps George yeah. <laughs> well this was the other thing I was actually going to say 
ask your bank what yeah. tools they offer. Yeah. And if they don't offer anything, then you might want to consider having a look around. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to switch now, I hear from Martin Lewis. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> He's never wrong. <laughs> um, we always like to ask our guests as well, any advice for your younger self if they were in the room? George, what advice? <laughs> doesn't have to be financial. We're talking yeah. bad haircuts. You yeah, know, well, have you got haircuts. any tattoos, Brian, you regret? I actually don't have any tattoos. Neither do I. I. No, I. I don't like not pain. A, not a t- oh, well, <laughs> interesting. I don't, I'm not a tattoo person, but I think I wish I'd died my hair younger. <laughs> uh, you dyed your hair? I went white and silver. Yeah, and it looked oh, really sorry, cool. Oh, I thought you meant because George's oh, no, got no, lovely black hair. Now. And I was <laughs> like, have you got the just for men out already at 23? <laughs> no, no, what? no. So, I mean, sort of be more experimental younger because it's good, it's good fun. You know, I was just sort of be curious, be experimental because then you learn. Spoken like a true fashion designer. Yeah, do it. Just be, that's almost my saying is be curious. <laughs> that's a great one. Be curious younger. Brian, what would you go for? For me, uh, probably less exciting. I would just tell my younger self to get out of bed earlier. <laughs> you'll get, you the, you'll a, get more done. An owl, not a lark? I have changed now as I've got a wee bit older and I have other responsibilities. But certainly when I was 18, yeah, I was definitely more of a night owl. So <laughs> I probably would have got more done. <laughs> Well, I just need to take this time to remind everyone, if you do want any more resources or any information, as always, they will be in the show notes wherever you are listening to this episode. Uh, But George and Brian, thank you so much for joining me on The Penny Drops. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Penny Drops. We hope you learned something new and useful to help you with your finances. We'd love to hear what you think of the series, so please do leave us a review. Or if you have any comments or money questions you'd like us to cover, you can get in touch at thepennydrops at royallondon.com. This podcast series is brought to you by Royal London, the UK's largest mutual life pensions and investment company. Royal London, determination since 1861. Royal London recommends you seek professional independent financial advice before making financial decisions. All views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and not of Royal London.